Well, good evening. Hello if you're here. Hello if you're on video land. It's, uh, it's great to be with you. And uh, let's pray as we come to look at this passage from Jonah tonight. Thank you, Father, for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can gather around your word now. Help us to understand what you're saying to us. Help me to speak it clearly. And we pray that as we read this chapter from Jonah, that we would know you better and love you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you're familiar with the concept of a sliding doors moment. Uh, It's the concept that is a relatively small event or a minor decision that changes events dramatically and raises the question of what would have happened if I hadn't got through the sliding door? Or what would have happened if I had got through the sliding door? Hence the label. So cricket tragics might be aware of the second Ashes test in 2005 in Birmingham. Uh, Australia is one up in the series uh, and looking, looking very good. But in the warm-up, half an hour before play starts, Australia's best bowler, Glenn McGrath, steps on a cricket ball, rolls his ankle, can't play. Uh, With Australia's weakened attack, England wins that test and goes on to win the Ashes. How might it have been different if Glenn Glenn McGrath had stepped two centimetres to the left? that morning, perhaps a bit more like it is now. Or Andrew Cullen, an Englishman who was working on the 89th floor of the second tower of the World Trade Centre on September 11th, 2009. At around 9am, he gets into the elevator, going to go up, but decides to press the down button and goes down. Seconds later, a plane flies into the building. But by then, he was below the level of the impact and was able to escape. How his life would have been different if that particular moment, he'd pressed the button differently. Or in 1916, in the Battle of the Somme, a German Lance Corporal was sheltering in a dugout and during an Allied uh, artillery bombardment. And a shell came and landed at the door of that dugout and he was struck by shrapnel and injured in his leg. How would it have been different if Lance Corporal Adolf Hitler had been mortally injured if the shell had landed just one metre to the right? Small, Small moments, small decisions that could have or did have major consequences and these, these decisions, these moments, they raise the question of what would have happened if, or if I'd had my time over again, would I do something different? The book of Jonah begins with a very clear command. Just have a look back one page at chapter 1, verse 1. This is the opening of the book. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Not much doubt about God's command, is there? This is, a, this is not one of these, mm, what, what exactly are you saying, God, sort of moments. No, no, no. 
And the response of Jonah is equally unambiguous. Look at verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish, which is exactly the opposite direction to Nineveh. Now, that's a relatively small decision, but as we see from chapters 1 and 2, this fairly small action of Jonah leads to a whole series of very significant events. Um, Getting on the ship with the pagan sailors, uh, revealing to them his, his disobedience of God. Uh, they're, they're tossing him overboard in, in the storm-tossed sea, being swallowed by the divinely ordained fish, his psalm-like reflection from inside the fish, and finally being vomited up onto the beach. A whole chain of events that are a result of his response in chapter 1, verse 3. So, what would have happened if his response had been different? If the sliding door moment, at that very moment, had been different, how would it have turned out? Well, we don't have to speculate, because in chapter 3, we find out. Have a look at the first two verses of chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. If you compare those two verses with the first two verses of chapter 1, it's exactly the same. What we're seeing here is a restart, a a second chance. If you like, Jonah has seen that things haven't been going the way that, you know, he should, um, so he's doing exactly what most of us do when the iPhone's not working properly, we turn it off and turn it on again. And when the restart happens, we see that the command of God is exactly the same. Go to Nineveh and proclaim my message. So the command of Jonah is the same, uh, the command of God to Jonah is the same, but what we see in verse 3 is the response of Jonah is completely different. What was Jonah's response in chapter 1, verse 3? Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Chapter 3, verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Why has Jonah changed his mind? Jonah 3 doesn't tell us. But I've just got this little theory. I think it's something to do with being hurled into the stormy sea by pagan sailors, being swallowed by a fish, spending three days and nights in the belly of a fish and then experiencing something of a resurrection by being regurgitated by the fish. Maybe that's just my theory. But as a result of that, obedience is the nature of Jonah's response here. So what follows in chapter, five, uh, chapter 3 is a drama set in five scenes. And as we walk through these five scenes, I want you to imagine that you are a film director making a, making a short film of the life of Jonah. And I want you to think about what's, just, what's happening in the scene, but also the mood, the, the vibe, if you like, and how in your direction of your short film with music and camera shots and angles and all that sort of stuff, you might try and communicate this vibe and this mood. Now, 
That may sound a bit artsy and dramatic, and for those of us like me who are sort of science and engineering types, we get a bit nervous at that sort of stuff, fair enough. But I think in some of these narrative sections of the Bible, especially like this, they are deliberately written in a dramatic way to invite us into the story, to, to imagine it, to picture it, to think about the characters. And so we need to step into that dramatic space. And I want you to do that as the director. So let's walk, walk very quickly through these five scenes. Scene one, verse 3b, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. So what are you thinking? This is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking a drone shot at sunrise, you know, zooming along the desert, coming in, seeing the city wall, pulling up over the city wall and then going up and looking down and seeing the action of this bustling uh, desert Middle Eastern city at dawn with its markets and activity and people doing business and all that kind of stuff. Now, of course, the writer here is, is kind of underselling Nineveh because I think we're supposed to know about it by reputation. At the time of Jonah, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, a world superpower. And when you think Assyria at this time, you think terrified. I imagine Nineveh and Assyria might conjure up the same sort of images as so-called Islamic State or the Taliban. Yes, the city is huge, three days to cross, sounds like a Mexico City traffic jam, but is terrifyingly huge. Assyria is a world superpower, uh, well known to be pagan, cruel, unforgiving. In fact, in your Bible, just a few pages after Jonah is the book of Nahum, which is a prophecy against Nineveh. And, and a quick read of Nahum leaves us in no doubt that they are a fearsome people, violent, powerful, to be feared, you don't want to mess with them. Let me read you a very short passage from the history of Israel, 2 Kings chapter 19, and this is when Hezekiah is king of Judah. So Assyria, led by King Sennacherib, has come up against Judah, they're trying to smash Judah, and are mocking Hezekiah's attempt to defend himself. And Hezekiah cries out to God saying, give ear Lord and hear, open your eyes Lord and see, listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands. They've thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them. For they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. The Assyrians are known for their ruthless destruction. And Nineveh is their capital. That's where Jonah is uh, commanded to go. Now, I think if we understand what Nineveh is like, we might not judge Jonah's initial running away from God's command to go there so harshly. How would you feel if God said to you, go to the deserts of Syria and proclaim the gospel to Islamic State? That is what we're talking about. Just before we move on to the next scene, just let me pause for a moment and say... For God to command people to go and declare his word in a place that is dangerous in the context of a foreign people 
That is not some isolated incident in the Bible here in Jonah. It's not out of character for God to do that. All throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we, we see his desire for people for all, from all nations, all tribes, all tongues, to hear his word and bow before the true and living God. It is why we continue to send missionaries around the world. And it is why missionaries continue to go to places where they are kidnapped, killed, yelled at, ridiculed, persecuted by governments and abused. Uh, just this week, some of us have been attending CMS Summer School online. Half of the missionaries in attendance could not go up on the stage and have their face on camera because they serve in locations where their personal security or the security of the people they work with would be threatened if their face was on the internet and it was said that they were missionaries. It is normal for mission agencies, for churches, for Christians to be involved in this sort of declaration. And that's why we send people to do it. It is consistent with God's character to say, go to a hard place and declare my word to that place. Scene two is verse four. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days until Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, up until this point, we've, we've heard God's repeated command for Jonah to go and preach to Nineveh, but only here in this second scene do we hear the content of his preaching. And it's a warning. Destruction is imminent. So try and picture the scene again. An obvious foreigner has, has walked into this great city that has a reputation for viciousness and strength. And he, he stood there in the plaza and he said, God is going to destroy you. Again, I'm thinking I'll need my drone to shoot this scene. I'm going to start in close on Jonah. Focus on him speaking these words, perhaps with a bit of a, a nervous tinge in his voice. And then I'm going to pull back and I'm going to see a huge crowd of threatening Ninevites closing in on him. Scene three, the response of the Ninevites. But instead of tearing this puny foreign preacher of judgment limb from limb and showing him that no one messes with the Ninevites, the Ninevites listen and they believe. They fast and they put on sackcloth the traditional symbols of mourning and repentance. And verse 5 leaves us in no doubt that this is a city-wide response. Three times the verse makes sure we know that the whole city is responding to the proclaimed judgment of God. The Ninevites, plural it says, believed God. All of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. This is the population of the great city of Nineveh. And in fact, scene four continues this theme of response as we, we go inside the royal court where the king himself has heard the message of Jonah and he himself takes on this posture of mourning and repentance in sackcloth and ashes. He is the king, the top dog, and yet he is in the most humble position possible, mourning and confessing before God. And from that position, he declares a decree, 
a decree that everyone and everything enter this posture of mourning. Not only that, but they must call on God to, and, and repent from their evil ways. The, the, the desperation of this decree echoes the panicked prayers of the sailors in chapter 1 as they face their death. Please save us, whoever you are. It, it's almost as if they're making a deal with God. Look at how we've repented. Look at how we've changed. As a city, we've given up our evil ways. But it's an uncertain deal. The great king of this feared city of Nineveh, who is used to making commands and smashing his enemies, is reduced to saying, who knows? There's no certainty in his action there. There's no guaranteed transaction. There's no checklist, okay, yep, 10 evil acts stopped, immunity from destruction achieved, look, God, here's our report card. No, the warrior king of Nineveh is begging, wondering, hoping. The last scene, verse, uh, scene five in verse 10, means that our movie will end up on Disney+, Plus, not buried in the depths of SBS on demand because it's the happy ending we want verse 10 God sees their repentance literally their change in direction and he doesn't destroy them it's a joyful climax to what's been a tense and dangerous sequence Jonah has proclaimed the judgment of God the Ninevites have heard the message and they've responded appropriately and they've been rewarded for their obedience, preserved rather than destroyed. The camera can pan out, return to the desert, leaving behind a city intact, a city transformed, cue stirring music. End. One of the, uh, one of the courses I taught regularly in Mexico was a, a Bible overview course. And we'd take 10 weeks to think about the whole message of the Bible and how each part of the Bible fits into the whole message. And one of the exercises I'd get, to do the get the students to do would be to think about different books of the Bible and draw an icon or an emoji or something like that to represent that book. It was kind of an, an exercise to, to get the students to think about the main theme of the book. And it was always an interesting exercise when we came to Jonah. How would you represent Jonah in in an emoji or, or a little icon. Uh, many would draw a big fish. I mean, fair enough. Uh, in terms of a, a memory hook, that's, that's not a bad thing. But Jonah's not about the fish, is it? In fact, the fish is a very minor character. So how would you do it? Because in the end, Jonah is a story about a merciful God and people repenting when they hear the message of that merciful God. And, and after three chapters, eventually, we've got there. Uh, perhaps a picture of a, a Ninevite putting his evil deeds behind him and, you know, living happily sort of sum, sums up the book. I'm not quite sure how you do that in a thing, but there you go. But there's a problem. The problem is that Jonah has four chapters, not three. And in the fourth chapter, things get a bit complicated. 
See, if there are only three chapters, we've shot our final scene, renewed Nineveh, we've rolled credits, straightforward, we're at the after party, red carpet, off we go. But there's more. Steve's going to look at chapter four next week, but I'm just going to have a little sneak peek, a little spoiler, if you like, at the first three verses. Because having seen what has happened in Nineveh at the beginning of chapter four, the camera returns to Jonah. And he's not happy. Why? Basically because he says, I knew this would happen. Have a look at verse two. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a compassionate and a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than live. Jonah's problem is that God's action has been consistent with his character. He knows the character of God slow to anger, abounding in love, compassion. That is directly from Exodus 34. That is God's character on the public record. In fact, it's exactly the character of God that the Ninevite king knows back in chapter 3. Jonah's problem is that God's action reflects his character. And the Ninevites have been the recipient of that action. See, the problem for Jonah isn't that God has those characteristics. In a sense, he's not complaining about what God is like. He's complaining about who is the recipient of what God is like. You know, I I don't hear him complaining when he's the recipient of what God is like. When when God is gracious and compassionate to him. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 9, when he's been rescued by the fish, he says... I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I vowed I will make good, I will say salvation comes from the Lord. It's all good when he gets rescued. And I suspect if the Ninevites hadn't repented and God had come good on his his promise and come in and destroyed them, Jonah wouldn't have been crying about that. No, Jonah wants God to be a good God but only to the right people. Sounds a bit selfish, doesn't it? And I wonder if that's where this section of Jonah takes us. Are we prepared to be obedient to God and let him do his work, even if it doesn't line up with what we think should happen or who we, should think, who we think it should happen to? There's a great moment in Luke chapter 4, which is what we read earlier, where Jesus is in his hometown of Nazareth. Uh, There's a a great expectation surrounding Jesus because he's been ministering in the the region and now he's come home. Um, He's on the preaching roster in the synagogue for Saturday. So the place is packed and everyone is looking at him eagerly. Uh, the daily scripture reading is from Isaiah chapter 61, which is a really well-known liturgical passage in, in, in Jewish tradition about the coming Messiah and, and the redemption that the Messiah will bring. And Jesus stands up and says, 
Luke chapter 4, verse 21. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, your long-awaited-for Messiah is here in me. In the next verse, verse 22, Luke tells us that they, the people in the synagogue, all spoke well of him and were amazed. They're on board. Of course they are. They're, they're faithful Jews. They've been waiting for their Messiah and here he is, beauty. But in verse 29, just seven verses later, the same crowd, the same congregation, just a matter of a few minutes after the sermon, they are taking him to a local cliff and wanting to throw him off it. Why? What, what happens in those few minutes, in those seven verses? Well, in those seven verses, Jesus explains what it means for him to be the Messiah. And he does so by using two famous stories from Israel's history. Uh, the miraculous feeding of the widow of Zarephath in the time of Elijah and the miraculous healing of Naaman the Syrian in the time of Elisha. Uh, two great stories from two heroes of Israel. But it absolutely infuriates the congregation in the synagogue. Why? Because those two people, the widow and Naaman, they're both Gentiles. Zarephath, where the widow is from, is, you know, that's absolutely not in Israel, and yet she experienced the blessing of God. And Naaman the Syrian, well, his, his name kind of gives it away, He's the Syrian. He's from Syria. And again, he experiences the blessing of God. See, in the mind of the congregation in the synagogue that day, the long-awaited-for Messiah is their Messiah. They're all for a merciful God, a compassionate God. They would recite Exodus chapter 34 that lists those things. But... In their mind, the mercy and the compassion has to be directed the right way. Their way only. Jonah sulks. The people in Nazareth try to kill Jesus for more or less the same problem. Great God, be the great God that you are, but be that way for me. I wonder if we can sometimes be a bit Jonah-like, that is, kind of possessive about God, expecting God to do things in the way we want him to do them, or to us. Maybe we can be a bit selfish, getting caught up in what God is doing, focusing on our patch. We get caught up in what he's doing here, or in our life, or under our conditions, that, that we can forget or, or be a bit jealous about what he's doing for other people. Maybe not jealous, but kind of, you know, we've got limited resources here, let's use our resources here. Whether those resources be prayer time, people time, money, whatever. Are we willing to share the compassionate Jesus around or is he just Jesus for us?
One of the great movements that is happening in world Christianity at the moment is that the center of sort of power and influence of, of Christianity is moving from Europe and the United States to Africa and Asia. Uh, whereas in Western countries, um, many churches are shrinking and Jesus is being ignored. In Africa and Asia, there is massive growth happening. Wonderful evangelism, growth in opportunities and training. Did you know that there are more people meeting in church in Indonesia today than there are total people in Australia? And Indonesia is a Muslim country. But it's interesting to see sometimes that those who are in the power position, how they are responding to this movement. Sometimes you can see a bit of Jonah in their response. I think as a church, we need to be active in making sure we never fall into that trap. Now, don't hear me wrong, I think we do a really great job of, of praying for all sorts of things at church here, that the scope of our prayers in, on Sunday is excellent, but we need to deliberately keep that going. Praying for people outside our circle, praying for our missionaries, praying for what God is doing around the world, we need to keep that up lest we be Jonah-like. When we're planning our, our church budget, our church activities, we need to keep on uh, being deliberate to make sure we are looking out, not just being focused here, not just lowering our eyes to just what is immediately around us, lest we be Jonah-like. When we're sharing prayer points at Bible study, we need to share beyond work and family challenges but instead be proactive in thinking about other people other places lest we be Jonah-like the message from Jonah is that God is doing great work in many different people groups and we should be praising him for that let's not be insular instead let's be people who rejoice in what God is doing for all sorts of people in all sorts of places and be thankful and involved in that. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are the Lord of all creation, of all peoples and nations. Thank you that you are working in all sorts of places and people from many tribes and tongues are hearing your word and responding in trust and obedience. Father, we praise you for that and we thank you for them. Help us to be people who have an eye for your work in the world. Help us to be thankful for that work and involved in it where we can be. Father, we do pray for people we know who are declaring Jesus in difficult places. Please strengthen them. Give them boldness. And please have mercy on the people who listen, that they may turn to you, that they may know that you are gracious and compassionate. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's thank God for his uh, grace and compassion.